I'm Michael. And I'm Michelle. And this is The Climate Crisis. Staring into this blazing summer with our country burning around us, it's obvious that there is no guarantee of any kind of success. But it's important to remember that in some fundamental ways, there never was. Every one of us was always going to die. And impermanence is the rule, not the exception, when it comes to species as well. More than 99% of species that have ever lived on this planet are no longer here. You might think it's depressing. Strangely, I think it's really freeing. Because the question is, what are you going to do with your short time here, in your fragile and precious body, on this fragile and precious planet? That's the very beautiful voice there of Nella Zuri, who we were recording live at Woodford, showing us how she is using her fragile and precious body on this fragile and precious earth. She's from a really interesting NGO called Climate for Change. And one of the goals of Climate for Change is for reaching people who may be more unaware on this topic, which is really important for a whole bunch of reasons. This is Nella Zuri talking about Climate for Change. Think for a moment about these people who we're reaching, who are outside the bubble of intense climate concern. Their parents, their young professionals, their retirees, they think climate change is a problem, but they're too busy to really engage with it most of the time. They have their own problems. And who really wants to think about something that is beyond their control and feels so depressing, right? I imagine many of them, like I did, used to scroll over those things in the, in the news site. But when their dear friend or their family member invites them to a talk about climate change and a meal that they have prepared themselves, it's not so easy to say no. They're still not always super keen, but often enough at work. They come, they listen, they talk about climate change and what we can do about it. They hear how worried their friends and their family members are. If they've been worried, they feel less alone. And if they haven't been worried, they start to see it as something that perhaps they should be really concerned about personally because their friends are. The conversation itself is fairly guided. The facilitator talks quite a bit. I share why and how I got involved, which allows people to connect with me and it models the kind of action that we'd love to see them take. We watch a video about climate change and while we include plenty of the hopeful solution-based stuff, we don't pull any punches. You know, climate change is really confronting. And as I see it, the video brings up all this energy, grief and anger and fear, like a big explosion. And we encourage them to talk about it. They hear themselves saying how scared they are and how much they want action. And this is important because research has found that one, most people don't talk that much about climate change. And two, the way that most people process things and decide what they're gonna do is through talking, uh, uh, through conversation, sorry, particularly with people that they trust. And three, we're far more likely to believe what we hear ourselves say than what we hear someone else say. So we spend a lot of the conversation, the rest of it, funneling that energy down, moving it towards action. We look at the scale of action that's required. I outline our theory of change. And we talk about actions that they can take. And at the end, I ask people what their next steps are. And all going well, they hear themselves say, well, 
I know my MP's got a mobile office this weekend, I think I'm going to go along. Or I'm going to talk to my sister next Tuesday about having a climate conversation together. The climate crisis is one of the biggest issues that we're collectively facing, yet very few people are actually having conversations about it. In fact, research shows 70% of people agree that there is a climate crisis and they're concerned about it, yet only a very small percentage, 3%, are actually talking about it. So just just pause on that for a second. Mm. 70% agree mm. that it's happening. Mm, and, and are worried about it. And 3% are talking about it. Yeah, yeah. So what that shows us is there's this actual climate of silence around this issue. And this is one of the things that Nell addressed in her talk, why we don't talk about climate change. Grappling with my sense of extreme urgency about climate change while trying to operate in a world that seemed largely oblivious to the danger that we were facing. It was a strange kind of double vision, and I'm sure many of you have had this experience too. I'd have people at school drop off talking about me, talking to me about ordinary things, you know, about their holidays and school lunches and soccer training. And it was a real struggle for me at first because at what point is it okay to interrupt? You know, and how would one even actually say, um, I hate to interrupt, but unless we all start focusing on systems change, climate change is going to drive us into an apocalyptic future in which soccer training may well be cancelled. <laughs> Unless the other person is already aware of the climate emergency, it's a difficult kind of conversation to have in this, in this context without sounding a little bit crazy. But when it's the truth and you don't say it, you're not really helping, are you? You're just feeding that denial in society. Because even though the last poll taken at the beginning of this terrifying summer, over three quarters of Australians believe that climate change is occurring and even more than that are concerned about the effects. Life goes on pretty much as usual, doesn't it? And how can it possibly be true that the world is ending if nobody's acting like it is, if soccer practice continues? We're social creatures and we watch our communities to see how we should act. And while society is in denial, the major parties don't really have to act, do they? And in fact, with the pressures that they face from vested interests, it's incredibly hard for them to do so. The fact that we cannot bear to look at the possibility of this disaster makes that very disaster more likely with every day that passes. And that's one of the most important takeaways from Nell's talk is that we need to be having conversations about this and the room, and that's not actually happening. The way human beings process very strong messages is through, co is through communication and conversations mm. with friends and trusted ones. There's also, and I'm expressing a personal opinion here, but I know there's a lot of people that hear what's going on in the climate and feel, no, I am talking about it. Yes. But what they're talking about is we're going to change this and we're going to fix it and we're going to, you know, the cavalry is going to come over the hill and the Green New Deal and we're going to suck the carbon out of the air and things are going to go on. Yeah. And um, there's part of me that dies a little bit in those types of conversations because yeah. I feel like there's a depth of feeling it that's not been reached. Yeah. So even though those people might be alert to it, I'm feeling them denying something. Yeah. 
And even if I was to go along the fantasy with them that all of that's true, it's also still true right now that hundreds of species are going extinct daily. We've lost 60% of wildlife, of all the wildlife since the 70s. There's a million or so, a quarter of all known species are on the near-term extinction list. Mm. There is a deep grieving that's necessary now, no matter how you hold this. We're just not talking about it. Yeah, we're just not talking about it. We're not collectively processing it. We're not coming together Mm. and saying, this is heartbreaking. Yes. Yeah. How can I be with my sadness about it? How can I make sense of what we're facing and what we've lost? Because there isn't... There hasn't been enough spaces open in community for public grieving and public Mm. even conversations. There's a song that I'd like to play. It's by a group called Dangerous Song. And they they have a beautiful project where they play endangered animal calls and animal calls from extinct extinct species combined with... Endangered or extinct, yeah. Endangered or extinct. And they also combine it with Lizzie O'Keefe's voice into a song. And, but it's a way of honouring and grieving for, for these animals that are extinct and are no longer with us or the ones that may be on that way. difficulty of facing climate change. It's called terror management theory. So we, like most animals, have obviously a very strong instinct for self-preservation. It's built into us by evolution because those that didn't have it, didn't survive, didn't pass on their genes. And so the idea of our own death disturbs us so greatly that we avoid thinking about it, avoid believing in it. And yet, as humans, we're smart enough to know that it is entirely inevitable we're all going to die. How do we hold these two things adroitly? With a little sleight of hand, we manage to hide what we know about our own death from ourselves. And yet there are costs to this. We have a tendency to live dulled lives, fretting over things that seem, when we really consider how briefly we're on this planet, very small beer indeed. Near misses with cancer or accidents often strip this lie away and open us up to live more bravely. 
And similar to my fear of climate change, terror management theory argues that our fear of death is not simply hidden, but actively repressed. We think, yeah, yeah, I'm going to die, of course. Yeah, yeah, climate change is happening, of course it is. But we actively repress the fear that naturally arises when we consider this, which means we do not act as if it is true. It takes energy to keep a lid on this. Tell the truth, the Extinction Rebellion says, and then act as if the truth is real. So we aren't just fighting the fossil fuel industry here, but our very own brains. You know, it's tricky. Truth and act as if it's real. That's the voice of Nell Azuri talking from Woodford. Mm. And um, she said so many things in there. Mm. Mm. Uh, we're not just fighting cultural, the cultural imperative to deny what's going on. We're fighting our own brains, which I, I think is just super fascinating. And that's the whole terror management theory, which mm. is, you know, which is fascinating because we don't want to look at our own deaths. That's overwhelming. Mm. I mean, even Stephen Jenkinson, mm. uh, you know, I heard a talk of his where he was saying that even people who are actually dying and everybody around them knows they're dying, those people don't know they're dying. Mm. And I can relate to that. And, you know, my father, three weeks before he was dying, was planning his trip to Afghanistan, his next trip to Afghanistan. He wasn't on the page. Yeah, uh, so it's a lot to look at for people. And so when the environment comes around, this crisis brings up a possible death right in front of our face. It's easy to push it away. It's what well, we want to do. actually, it's not easy. Mm. That's the point she makes, which I think is very, very important. It is our instinct to push it away because it's too threatening, but actually it requires a lot of energy to put it away. So let's have a little listen to what she had to say. Socially organised denial, it was um, a concept that was come up with by Kari Norgaard, yeah. I think. And, um, yeah, it's this whole web of, like, social and political and personal factors that all kind of interrelate and mean that even though we accept on a cognitive level that this is happening, we suppress the feeling, the affect. And so because of that, we don't act on what we know. We are, are lying to ourselves. And it certainly seems like um, one of the things that helps people to actually begin to act as if what they know is true is true, is speaking to other people about it. Hearing themselves talk about it, hearing you know, their own concern and then hearing their friends. And, and being validated in that. Yeah. yeah. Stop spinning, would it be a better place for you and me? Or would we all be falling deep inside a big abyss or dark oblivion?
how do we have a real conversation about a very emotionally loaded and triggering issue? Yes, yes, that's so true. It is so triggering. We've talked about this before on this program. It's definitely triggering. Yeah. So, so then given that it's triggering and given that the urge is to want to start shouting at stupid people who think differently than we do, um, <laughs> how can we approach that uh, yes. to soften that out a little bit? I guess my, um, my tip is to look up, there's a great video that George Marshall has done. Uh, so just kind of Google how to talk to deniers with George Marshall. <laughs> but um, I think my main tip personally is to be How curious. to avoid talking to deniers <laughs> or how to talk no, no. to deniers, which one? Yeah. How to talk to deniers. He's such a great, he, he wrote a great book called um, Don't Even Think About It, Why your, your brain, Why Our Brains Are Wired to Ignore Climate Change. And most of the book, a lot of the book is about him going and talking to deniers and different it's amazing it's a really a wonderful book because again it's that not polarizing you know seeing people as people and seeing how we kind of get into this mess and being curious like I think that's my main tip is reaching out finding the common ground between you rather than you know going in with all guns blazing well, I actually learned a lot about communication from Nell, um, which, and one of the main things is that no one ever changed their mind through being yelled at. That was just said, and I was like, I can oh, vouch for that. That's definitely true. <laughs> She's tried it. It doesn't work. Well, it's a, I think it's a natural response when you feel so passionately about something and you feel that other people just don't get it or don't see it. You want to throw the facts at them and mm. if they come back at you with counterfacts, you want to sort of attack their basis. Where did you get that idea from? That's all wrong. And it's basically on the top of <clears throat> the what not to do list. One of the beautiful things about Climate for Change is they have these conversations in-house using the Tupperware model mm. uh, where people gather at 10 at a time and they watch a movie and they talk about it and they're, they're trying to move people along to get them more active. And they have a political focus and we're going to talk about a little bit about that because I think there's many more options than that. But the journey to empowerment may involve, you know, a real fall through the bottom of the earth on this one. You mean a fall through grief? A fall through grief. I agree with you there. Yeah. yeah even Noah Azuri, she shared some of her personal journey. In fact, I'm, I'm a really good illustration of the way that things often go with climate awareness. I knew about climate change since I was a kid. I certainly knew that it was something that someone would have to do something about someday. But I, I certainly didn't think it would be me. And then in 2007, I read a book by George Monbiot and it just broke me open to the seriousness and urgency of the problem. But when the Copenhagen climate talks ended so badly, I just turned away. I, I spent the next seven years actively suppressing my concern about it. I, I avoided it, I didn't act. I was passive at the same time as being increasingly concerned, increasingly despairing. And I can see in retrospect that this took a lot of energy. And then three years ago, Donald Trump was elected and I read that catastrophic fire conditions were predicted to come north to Queensland where I lived. And these two things triggered an urgency and an immediacy that overrode my suppression. And the energy that I've been using to suppress my concern was now available for me to act. 
And so I went from zero to 100. Within a couple of months, I was leading, leading online groups and I was going down to Canberra to talk to MPs. I'd stepped into a leadership space. And it felt great. You know, I wanted to share it with people. It seems to me that all the leaders, the climate leaders that I've been in touch with, they've all had a real personal journey in this where they have dropped through the floor and done very little for quite a long time before they've come into action. And it's a curious thing that the people that have been prepared to feel the most on it have ended up coming to do them to do the most about it. Nell Azuri, her at Woodford, and she was talking about her children and um, how she talk, communicates with them or how she doesn't communicate with them. But she cried with us while we were talking to her and I could really feel the depth that she was taking that. A lot of food for thought in this. There's a question that I have um, too about a particular section of the population, the parents. And um, I, I think for understandable reasons, uh, they often find it the hardest to come to terms with what's happening and um, I wonder if you've had them in your conversations and uh, did you say parents parents yeah. yes <laughs> I'm yes. a parent uh, yes well, that's right as a parent how would you as a climate communicator talk to your children oh god okay uh, that's a really hard one so I've got yes. a six-year-old and a, a sorry a seven-year-old and a four-year-old now that just had birthdays and um, I, I don't talk a lot about it with my kids um, because I find it too hard. Um, I think that for me, the most important thing is... Um, is really finding ways to live um, that makes sense in this context and in my talk this afternoon I'm going to talk a little bit about um, terror management theory Beautiful. <laughs> which is um, it's just about uh, you know our, our incredible uh, sort of fear of death basically and how you know as a proxy for death we suppress climate change. We suppress our awareness of climate change in the same way that we suppress our awareness of death. Just as we were talking about before, you know, we give lip service to the fact that it's happening, but we suppress the actual feeling that we have, and so we don't act on it. And for me, the revolution is acting as if I'm going to die. Yes. 
you know, and so that's what it means for me, is raising my children as if I'm going to die and as if they're going to die. Oh my God. Yeah. That's so powerful. Because it was always true. It was true before this and it's still true. And so there are a lot of resources out there for that. And that's, I just, like, I really see that as, you know, the gift for me and for my kids because you can live your whole life in a really small way yes, without too much trouble. And this really calls us all mm. to live as if we were going to die. It's beautiful. That was the voice of um, Neil Azuri. Mm. We were talking to her at Woodford and she said earlier uh, when she was talking about this that when we hide this uh, fear of death from ourselves when we when we tuck it away it's very easy to live dull lives mm. to gravitate towards what's absolutely safe and secure and I think it comes down to when people really drop into the space of grief it's like it f it feels like a surrender to what's actually happening and a, a sort of giving up in a certain way mm. and so uh, I can also see, in, you know, if I, if I go inside that feeling that people don't want to go there because they want to be action, they want to stop it happening, but it is happening. Even if, it, even if there's some miraculous thing that might turn us around, there's still this massive loss of wildlife that we've had. There's still a grieving that needs to be done. It's fine building jumbo planes or taking a ride on a cosmic train. Switch on summer from a slot machine. Just get what you want to if you want, as you can get anything. I know we've come a long way We're changing day to day But tell me, where do the children play? Just go on.